I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and thanks for joining Democracy Sausage again. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and uh, I often mention the Crawford School of Public Policy on this pod, which provides such uh, excellent support. But I'd like to give a special shout-out to another couple of people, Professors Sally Wheeler and Paul Pickering. Professor Wheeler is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor International Strategy at ANU, as well as being the Dean of the College of Law. And Professor Pickering is a world-renowned historian and is founding director of the Australian Studies Institute. Both have been, as I say, such advocates of this podcast and of the idea of universities being engaged in public debate. So I'd certainly like to thank them. Now, some of you may have heard of the name Rex Connor before. He was Mines and Energy Minister in Gough Whitlam's rather too exciting government in the early mid-1970s. And he was one of the three C's who had to be sacked as the government unravelled, the others being Jim Cairns and Clyde Cameron. Rex Connor's transgression was to try to organise state financing for giant energy and resources projects, essentially by going round Treasury and using a private sector broker. I think from memory, the sum involved in the loans affair, as it became known, was about $4 billion. A few weeks ago, Kevin Keith Pitt not Kevin Pitt, Keith Pitt, the current government's Minerals and Resources Minister, called for a $250 billion public loan facility for big miners unable to secure bank financing. His argument was that banks won't lend money to risky coal and gas, so the taxpayer should carry the burden. Now, Connor got sacked for his rather unorthodox behaviour. This week, Keith Pitt, a trenchant pro-coal ideologue, got elevated to Cabinet for his troubles. Among the winners from the Whitlam government's resignation uh, spree was a young Paul Keating who had served a couple of weeks in Whitlam's ministry before the government fell. One wonders if this could be Pitt's trajectory as well. A few glorious months on the big salary for agreeing to go quiet on net zero 
his 30 pieces of silver, or in his case, about 30 grand in extra salary. Keating, of course, would go on to be Australia's most transformative treasurer and then prime minister, arguably the dominant political figure of his generation. Keith Pitt, one suspects, and not so much. He might have already peaked. And a final historical quirk on this, all of this played out, Pitt's elevation, on the exact day Keating entered Parliament in 1969, October 25. Hmm, well, that's history. And speaking of history and great products of ANU, I'm delighted to have former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd on The Sausage this week. Kevin Rudd, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Uh, good to be with you uh, in the halls of democracy and in the elevated cuisine of sausages, which is <laughs> which Bismarck spoke about in terms of observing the process of public, public policy and politics, never like sausage making to be observed too closely. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point, actually, and, and it's, I'm glad you raised it because... Most people, I think, assume this podcast is called Democracy Sausage. You know, it's some sort of reference to the tradition, which has certainly become even more prevalent in recent uh, elections of having a sausage sizzle outside the the ballot box, outside the the polling booth, um, you know, and the the so-called sort of Bunnings, um, you know, barbecue effect that happens there. Um, And and look, that was part of the logic of it, but it was also that, that, that point you raise about the the process of democracy being perhaps less palatable than the outcome and uh, people being somewhat turned off, just like they might be if they knew the exact contents of a, of a sausage. You, you of course, uh, had, a, had a pretty famous reference to, to that. One of your, uh, one of your famous uh, statements was, what was it, fair shake of the sauce bottle? Well, that, was, that was sort of related to barbecues anyway. Yeah, sort of people um, quizzed the uh, the authenticity of the remark. If you grew up in rural Queensland, it's just say that all the time. Yeah, and so, I think uh, you made that point at the time, and it was it was an, probably an interesting uh, kind of um, uh, statement of the difference between perhaps the Canberra Press Gallery and 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 their particular milieu and uh, and and the one from which you emerged. Well, yeah, I mean, people often assume that you if you end up. Um, as uh, an effete member of the Australian Foreign Service, that you've lost your own Queensland vernacular. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I could walk and chew gum at the same time. I can speak international relations speak, and uh, and never forget where I've come from. <laughs> That's true. Worlds, although, the that, the that's two true. worlds cohabit. That the two worlds do cohabit. But I, I will say, in defence of the press gallery of which I was a member at the time, that um, we, you know. We were always on the lookout for for a bit of artifice as well, and perhaps that makes one somewhat hyper aware at times. And you know, wrong calls can be made. Um, yeah, no, I think that was a wrong. I mean, I could have given you other examples where I think I could have been legitimately accused of artifice, but that wasn't one of them. That's just kind of where I came from. So let's let's go to some substance uh, uh, at the outside of the sausage. Uh, what's being served up at the moment? What do you make of the current government's conversion, this road to Damascus conversion on net zero by 2050? Um, I was particularly galled, I suppose, if I'm honest, um, at Nancy Pelosi's somewhat absurd gratitude to Scott Morrison for his so-called leadership on on climate change. Um, because if she's seen leadership on climate change, she's been watching a different uh, movie from the one that you know people have been watching Australian politics really for the last dozen years have seen. Um, is there a danger that this is, well, I don't know if danger is the right word, but is there a likelihood that this is the way it's going to be seen in Glasgow? I mean, Boris Johnson's already called the shift that Australia has just announced, this um, hardening up on net zero by 2050, as heroic. I mean, it's 
pretty extraordinary. Uh, is it possible that um, just like that, lickety split, the, the coalition's laundered a dozen years of negation through this, what I say is a fairly rhetorical shift? Uh, lickety split's not an artifice, is it, Mark? <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> All right. Okay. Got just sort of labor the point. The um, fair point. You know, something with climate, because the planet doesn't lie, uh, bullshit ultimately outs. It really does. It takes a little, t- a little while, usually a year or two, uh, but uh, the bullshit ultimately outs, or whether what you've done is real. And what you see with Boris is the supreme uh, maestro of, let's call it, um, of uh, image-making and contrary tricks. Uh, for those of you who observed his political craft, which is um, it's always a, a running three-symbol trick, you know, of um, follow the symbol, uh, the thimble, I should say, where you think the um, uh, the action is now moved to. Uh, whereas ultimately, you discover that there's nothing under any of those thimbles. <laughs> um, you know, Morrison is kind of what I describe as a C-grade Boris. Um, and uh, moving in that sort of um, trickery direction, but with less um, uh, less artifice, to use the term of our engagement today, and uh, less style, and certainly less sort of uh, Churchillian bluff, which is what we see with Boris. But here's the truth: the debate about carbon neutrality in 2050 has been had and resolved in every other advanced democracy in the world well before now. Australia is the last uh, major economy to finally accede to what has been a pre-existing global consensus. Um, secondly, to be credible on getting to carbon neutrality by 2050, what really matters is what you do in terms of carbon reductions by 2030. Um, and there's a piece of mathematics about that. You can't have an adjustment curve on a graph which basically goes at 90 degrees because you just can't do that. You need one which is minimum 45 degrees and ideally something at about 33 degrees on the curve uh, because the adjustment pace um, is such that um, you need that level of time to decarbonise on the one hand, uh, renewableize on the other and enhance your energy efficiency measures on the third front. So I just think this is so much smoke and mirrors, aided and abetted by the supreme all-embracing greenwashing of the Murdoch media, which um, is right out there in an Academy Award-winning performance for cynicism uh, and uh, corporate greenwashing and as a political protection racket to to provide cover for Morrison's about-face. So let's go to that um, that, that broader coverage of it because there's there's already been this kind of evident pivot by Scott Morrison to talk about only... Only we can be trusted to protect jobs as the nation commits to net zero over 2050. That was his, you know, that was his kind of line in Parliament, and almost straight away, made to order on the front page of the Australian the next day. There was a headline to that effect: uh, "Coalition to Protect Jobs in the Transition." Um, are you suggesting there was some sort of coordination between the coalition and and News Corporation in that uh, in that process in that Shift. Wow, wash your mouth, Mark Kenny, wash your <laughs> mouth. How could you have such impure thoughts on a program such as this for families? 
Um, of course there's bloody coordination. I mean, what is it about you guys in the fourth estate? You can't just name it for what it is. <laughs> it's total unreconstructed collaboration, coordination, uh, and, uh, and uh, calibration. I mean, the crab walk to carbon neutral by a news corporation began about six months ago, for those of us who watch the page as carefully as you do. Uh, about four months ago, it began by uh, it began with Morrison in, in earnest, and this has just been orchestrated crab walking. Um, why has it had to be a crab walk? Because in the 2019 election, 2016 election, 2013 election, 2010 election, um, uh, this mob collectively, the Liberals and their coalition partner, the Murdoch Party, uh, had um, uh, campaigned that any action of substance on climate change would destroy economic growth, jobs, and undermine living standards. Hence the crab walk. Because to do anything other than crab walk would mean having to front up the Australian people and say, we've lied to you for a decade. That actually should be the headline on the front page of the Australian, we've lied to you for a decade. Now, Kevin, Rudd, you were in Copenhagen, of course, uh, for what was one of the very pivotal climate change uh, conferences, the Conference of the Party, COP15, as it was called, back in 2009. I was there as a, uh, a travelling journalist covering that with you. And, in fact, I remember you and I doing a sit-down interview. I don't know if you recall this, but it was literally about 2.30 or 3 a.m. Um, was I coherent? I prob- uh, well, yes, you were surprisingly coherent, <laughs> uh, probably more so than me. I mean, I'd been up for a long time and I think you'd been up longer. Um, yes, we'd been I remember up, we'd Penny been up for about 48 hours, I think. Yeah. yeah, and I remember before the interview, like perhaps even an hour or so before the interview at about what had been about 12.30, you and Penny Wong had done a, a media conference with us, with the mm. Australian media. Uh, and I remember then we were, you know, it sort of continued in an informal sense after the formal press conference had ended. And I remember looking at, at Penny Wong, who was climate change minister at the time, and she was kind of swaying. And I was literally worried that she was so tired that she was going to Hmm. Uh, going to collapse, but uh, it was it was a very taxing time. I, I tell this, I mentioned this really just because uh, you know to make the point that you know I was there, we were both there. I wondered if you could give our listeners just a sort of a sense of what it's like in these giant meetings, um, and and perhaps a, a glimpse of of how direct the negotiations are, leader to leader, or whether you know almost everything's done by officials. Um, how much detail is gone into with leaders and what and 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 I guess as an instruction of what Scott Morrison might be facing when he goes to Glasgow in a few days' time yeah it's um probably the best analogy for it is it's like a giant babushka doll um there are just layers within layers within layers, and the outer layer you'll see what I describe as you know the public um, and the public protest activity from civil society. Uh, good and necessary, in my view, it's part of the democratic process. It's the uh, casing of the sausage, um, yeah. and uh, uh, then you've got what I describe as the um, uh, official uh, negotiating process, uh, which technically um, occurs at a formalised level on the conference floor, which is when you'll see footage of. Uh, 192 national delegates uh, sitting behind their their nameplates, and that's where official positions are enunciated um, and or, in the case of many other governments, uh, 
who was seeking to obstruct progress contested. Um, so it's a debate about process and it's a debate about the formalization of positions. Where the chair of the conference, in this case, the government of the United Kingdom, um, uh, will, uh, with the gavel, uh, be empowered with the responsibility of gaveling decisions into international agreement or not gaveling them. Then at the inner part of the babushka doll, um, let's call it the meat and the sausage, and the meat within the meat and the sausage, uh, is uh, where you have a gaggle of either ministers um, or heads of government, uh, usually a core group uh, in what's called the green room, uh, which is where uh, the uh, horse trading occurs in terms of language in the communique. That's where Penny Wong and myself were locked for effectively two days. There are about 20 of us in a tiny room, frankly, with the President of the United States, uh, myself, uh, so Barack Obama, the Canadians, um, as well as um, Angela Merkel, French President, um, President of the European Commission, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, um, and uh, and because the Chinese and the Indians uh, were not playing ball at that stage, they were represented by ministers and officials, but everyone else at the head of government level. And that's where we, under the chairpersonship of the host Prime Minister, then the Prime Minister of Denmark, worked on what was called the Copenhagen Accord, and that's what we spent two days hammering out around three or four major contentious issues uh, where um, we finally got an agreement, uh, at least within that room, and then where the Chinese and the Indians intervened was to prevent it from being formally gaveled uh, back on the conference floor. So I hope that explains the Babushka doll. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it does. And, and is there, I guess, just to sort of, dwell on that for a moment is there the capacity the possibility the tendency for frank words you know finger pointing to happen uh in that in those circumstances i mean as you say some of these negotiations are going on over protracted number of hours people will be uh maintaining or putting forward positions that others are not agreeing with and uh, in that case with the indians and the chinese and we you know you were quite angry about that, understandably, as were a number of others. Um, is, is that the kind of thing? I mean, Morrison's going to walk into Glasgow saying, guess what, guys, we're for you know um, net zero by 2050 when no one in the Australian Parliament's even going to be still in the Australian Parliament. Um, but we're not prepared to sort of nail anything down before then. We're not even prepared to stand behind our 2030 projection as a pledge. Uh, that's how much we rely on it. We're not going to give you that pledge. Surely some people are going to see through that and you would think have direct words with, with the Australian Prime Minister. Yeah, I think, for example, you could rely upon the European Union and probably uh, the United States to finger Morrison for, frankly, this uh, duplicitousness. As I said, the 2050 carbon neutrality debate is a done deal. The real action is what governments are now committing to by way of their renewed and redefined um, near-term carbon reduction targets for this decade, the 2020s through until 2030. Um, and, uh, and that's where the rubber hits the road for the reasons I explained before. So most uh, governments are in the business of um, advancing reductions of around about 
50% against 2005 levels of their current greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that's certainly where the Americans have gone. That's where most of the other majors have gone. That's where Japan has gone, um, for example, and I think the ROK, uh, our principal trading partners in Asia, not just in Europe and in the United States. So right now we're a shag on a rock <laughs> in terms of 2030, um, whereas the illusion being created by a cocktail of um, uh, Murdoch, uh, Morrison and Boris is that somehow... Um, there's been a Damascus Road conversion and there'll be garlands of flowers uh, thrown out um, on the path as um, as uh, Morrison makes his way to the conference centre in Glasgow. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Kevin, right before the break, we were talking about uh, Boris Johnson and the leaders and uh, the, the, the situation in these talks uh, and how the world will view Australia. I, I, can I put it to you that perhaps Boris Johnson, let's, let's be generous to Boris Johnson for a moment. I mean, he's, he's pledging, what, 68% by 2030 and I think 78% by 2035. And for a conservative, being a lot more front-footed than than some others, certainly than conservatives in Australia, is it possible that that there's just diplomacy and um, and and uh, a kind of uh, an encouraging aspect about what he's saying? He's calling Australia's. He said to these school kids, I think that Australia's pledge of net zero by 2050 was was heroic, but he was really trying to say, and I encourage others to step up to the plate. So uh, perhaps he's just trying to make uh, you know. To use a, another Australian um, uh, colloquialism, perhaps he's just polishing the turd a bit. <laughs> the, um, I'll, I'll leave that analogy where it is. I mean, you, you, you South Australians really need to um, to uh, work on your um, local vernacular vernacular because it shocks those of us in Queensland who are used to a more refined version. Of the Queen. More genteel world. Yeah, yeah, because uh, we're a nation of free settlers like you South Australians. Anyway. Not really. We're criminals <laughs> like the rest of the country. Um, uh, look, uh, I think you're absolutely right about uh, Johnson and his national commitments, um, though Johnson and his wildest dreams wouldn't be dreaming of being around to actually deliver on them um, because uh, that's not the way Boris thinks. When I think think of Boris, think of public administration um, and the delivery of actual programs into reality. 
Think of what's happening to the National Health Service uh, in the United Kingdom. That's why you should have some scepticism about delivery. Um, but leave that to one side. His commitments are robust in terms of the British government's commitments. So I, ex- I agree with you on that. Um, secondly, I think um, the level of um, political collaboration between the British Conservatives and the Australian Liberal Party is um, is like hand in glove. I mean, this is um, the staffs talk to each other all the time. They work out combined political strategies with each other all the time. The political collaboration, for example, involved most recently in the Morrison-Johnson exercise on AUKUS and nuclear-powered submarines has been orchestrated very much at a political level. Um, and at, what I mean by that is at an office level, at a machine level. And it's all about, in the British case, the desire to for Johnson to be seen post-Brexit as bringing British manufacturing home. So he'll be selling the illusion that this will result in the manufacturing by British manufacturers of nuclear submarines for Australia. So this is kind of important to bear in mind because we're trading in images and illusions here. And as we said at the beginning of this conversation, Mark, the planet doesn't lie. Um, uh, Whether it's the bullshit factor or the polished turd factor, ultimately, um, there is a question of is this real or not? Um, and I, when I look at um, Boris's uh, treatment of um, Morrison's carbon neutrality stuff, he's just gilding the lily, uh, polishing the substance you referred to before. When the real debate, as the conference begins, will be what happens in 2030. That's where the entire focus of that room will be, as well as who will be um, contributing to the uh, global uh, climate uh, fund Uh, where Australia is currently the only developed country of any substance not to be a contributor to what is an adjustment fund for the poorest uh, economies and most climate-affected economies in the world. That's where the acid will come on Australia, whereas the Murdoch exercise and the Morrison exercise will be to sprinkle fairy dust across the top and say it's all been fixed because we're carbon neutral and then glide on to the next illusion and image as the planet still burns. And do you think, in the context of the current domestic political cycle, we're obviously on the eve of, of, of an election season. Um, do you think it's going to have an effect in the uh, domestically? I mean, can can you imagine Morrison, for example, you know, coming back from Glasgow and 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 feeling that he's gone some way towards neutralising this issue for the coalition as a negative? Uh, that'll be his um, his dream because ultimately uh, Morrison in, inhabits a world constructed of um, political language and political images and, and, in my judgment, on the climate question, not reality. So what are the images we've had thrown around? A, to deal with his problem with inner-city liberal health seats, for example, in Brisbane, in the seat of Brisbane, um, in um, Sydney, the seat of Wentworth, seat of North um, Sydney, in Melbourne, Kuyong Higgins, um, not a small number of uh, liberal seats around the country. Um, uh, he's under enormous pressure to be, quote, seen to be doing something, unquote, on the part of people who may uh, be um, affluent uh, but who have a level of climate conscience about themselves. So that's what he's seeking to do. At the same time, what he's seeking to do uh, is to say to uh, uh, outer suburban Australia, 
that um, yeah, we're going to do a bit of this green stuff, but don't worry, um, we're uh, we're on your side. Um, and then with this orchestrated kabuki play with the National Party, uh, they'll be allowed to run around the bush and saying we don't believe in this climate bullshit anyway. It's just all bullshit, um, so don't worry about it. Um, and that is the set of kabuki plays which are being orchestrated. I keep going back to the reality test. Um, underneath it all, is there going to be a a legislated commitment to carbon neutrality by 2050? B, what will be the renewed carbon reduction target for 2030? And C, what's the means by which to get there in terms of critical decisions in electricity supply and renewable energy uh, extension as well as um, energy efficiency? They are the boring public policy reality questions, uh, which unless addressed, you know, this country will still burn up uh, or blow up with extreme weather events as well as the other consequences of climate change. Yeah, now you mentioned AUKUS a minute ago. I'd like to come back to that uh, in a moment, but but also one of the other things you mentioned was 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 Barnaby Joyce and the Nats. Is is Joyce's position sort of tenable? I mean, he, it, it's it's now quite clear that his party has agreed very narrowly, it seems, very narrowly agreed to this net zero by twenty pledge, um, and, and yet Joyce himself does not support it. Joyce, key Joyce supporters like Canavan and Christensen and others, Keith Pitt, even the aforementioned, um, don't apparently support it. It, it. it it does have Kabuki play feel about it in terms of in terms of the artifice and the the sort of formulaic theatrics of it all. But but um, one wonders: does this what does this do to Joyce's um, credibility as a leader? Well, these men are of such uh, high principle that they've elected to uh, a stay in cabinet in the case of Pitt join uh, the Ministry of the Cabinet, uh, B, uh, be paid their uh, ministerial salaries, while C, embracing a policy position which they fundamentally oppose, and not just at the margins, but have crafted this as being the absolute centrepiece of their belief system in politics. So what does that say about the credibility of the National Party? It says that they've ceased to be a party for anything or anybody other than themselves. It's become this... um, uh, in my judgment, uh, quite uh, corrupt um, uh, fag-end institution uh, which uh, grew out of what was not a bad political movement in its day, once called the Country Party, which actually saw its uh, responsibility as representing the interests of farmers. Um, no longer. Um, it's actually, um, as we've seen through sports rorts and every other thing which, with rorts mentioned to it, it's not far from the mention of the word rort and the introduction of the word National Party into the same sentence and paragraph. Let's go to the AUKUS uh, announcement. How much of that was theatrics? Was, as you say, it's quite interesting, uh, Britain's involvement in that, and there's the industrial, potential industrial dividend for, for, uh, for Boris Johnson in the post-Brexit phase to be saying he's bringing manufacturing jobs home. There's also the, I guess, the overall uh, kind of... Um, you know, re- revisiting the argo of uh, the, you know, Britain as a as a power, as a global power in some way, and uh, having influence in you know on the other side of the world, and you know, sort of uh, being globally significant again, part of this this sort of big alliance. But is there really much to this? I mean, in in terms of a substantive submarine program, we've got no contract at all at the moment, as as distinct from the situation a few weeks ago when we did have one with the French. 
Again, it's like climate change because it speaks to the same political modus operandi. Is it's a triumph of imagery over substance. Um, we've discussed that just now in terms of carbon neutral twenty fifty, as opposed to the meat and potatoes of twenty thirty, and how to actually bring about reductions in the next nine years. Certainly with submarines. Um, uh, submarines are a very complex acquisition process. As you know, my government began this in 2009, the Defence White Paper, when uh, we concluded based on our strategic, changing strategic circumstances and the rise of China that we needed to double the submarine fleet in order a replacement fleet of conventional subs. That uh, advice was accepted by both the Abbott and um, Turnbull governments. Turnbull then proceeded to award the contract to the French uh, in an open tendering process. And despite critique about where the uh, the, the, um, prog- the program uh, was and how it was developing, uh, essentially you're on target for new vessels to be started to be delivered in the early 2030s. And, um, and that was an important piece of defence acquisition timetabling. The net consequence of what's happened, I think, is A, it's not just alienating the French, but you've actually turned the French into... You know, a hostile agent against Australian interests regionally and globally. And France is a P5 member of the United Nations Security Council, bear that in mind, and a principal country within NATO. B, you've established a reputation sovereignly for Australia as a country which doesn't honour its contracts. Not good. C, I think most critically, on top of the above, um, we have now at present the illusion of nuclear-powered subs arriving in this country sometime in the 2030s, possibly not until the 2040s, and us being left strategically naked on the way through. I find that the most absolutely irresponsible element of this entire equation. And so I wonder where the grown-ups in the room have been during these discussions. As I've said repeatedly in debates so far on the submarine question, Mark, I am not, as a matter of policy or ideology, opposed to the notion of nuclear-powered submarines if the strategic and engineering advice, by which I mean the technical engineering advice, has changed from the deliberations we had and the advice we took in 2009. But if you were going to change to nuclear subs, nuclear-powered submarines, then for God's sake, go through an immediate retendering process, invite the French and the British and the Americans to tender, establish clearly what the, what the boat refurbishment program is for Collins, and to make sure that you don't have an emerging capability gap, which is what I fear we're on track to achieve. But none of this actually matters to Dutton and uh, Morrison. If you look at their persona, look at their language, the imagery they play with, it's all about conjuring a set of essentially uh, conservative images uh, for the body politic to consume. And a bit like climate change, laughing their way to the political bank because they know they're not going to be in office when the rubber hits the road and they're supposed to deliver this stuff. That is such a gross dereliction of national responsibility. How seriously is it taken in Beijing, do you think? Is it seen as, as this kind of, um, you know, theatrical exercise or is it seen as serious? I don't at this stage know because I haven't been able to sit down with counterparts in Beijing to go through this in a granular level. What I do know from the public record is that when the Chinese were challenged most recently over their hypersonic um, missile tests, uh, that the immediate response from Chinese officials was the United States and its allies are engaging already in nuclear proliferation uh, in Asia through the um, submarine deal 
uh, with Australia because of the nature of the uh, of the uh, uh, nuclear batteries which would be placed into these vessels. So it's already part of, shall we say, the rhetorical fusillade being used by the Chinese on broader disarmament questions. China has no basis upon which to argue uh, that it's pure on nuclear questions. It's been a nuclear weapon state since the 1964 and is now in the process of expanding its own nuclear weapons arsenal, including nuclear-powered and armed submarines. Um, but your question was, to what extent has it changed positions in Beijing? I think the real danger for us is that uh, there is an egregious effort, I think, on the behalf of a number of conservatives in Australia to do everything they can to uh, poke the Chinese bear to get a reaction in order to make them, the conservatives in Australia, look like hairy-chested defenders of our democracy against, um, you know, the hordes to our north. Uh, I think that's been a long-standing part of the conservative kabuki play again. Unfortunately, you know, reality always comes back to bite you on the, on the, on the derriere. And I worry that when these, this mob lose office, that the, the amount of wreckage which then has to be cleared up in terms of the radical adjustment of um, Chinese strategic perceptions of Australia, which has occurred over the last several years, is going to be uh, a long, long time in the doing um, in order to you know, remove the, uh, the target from our foreheads. Just on China very quickly, do you think that the direction that China has been going, which is you know, towards increasing authoritarianism um, you know, as a much stronger security state, uh, you know, clamping down on rights and the like, is that sort of inevitable or is it very much associated with Xi Jinping and therefore if Xi Jinping were not there uh, in the future for some reason, if they, someone moved on him or he became ill or whatever it was and there was a changeover, uh, is there a prospect for China to uh, perhaps halt its descent into that kind of hardline authoritarianism and perhaps uh, stabilise, re-enter the in, into dialogue with countries like Australia in the future? Yeah. By the way, just one footnote about uh, AUKUS, which I meant to mention mm-hmm. before, is and you ask, is there much to it? AUKUS, at the end of the day, is just a defence procurement agreement. This is not a security alliance. The Security Alliance is a mutual defence pact uh, with mutual defence obligations. Under AUKUS, Britain is not committed to come to Australia's aid uh, in the event of uh, an attack on an Australian vessel uh, in the uh, South Pacific. The United States is, but the United Kingdom is not. So again, the public relations department of the spin, spin doctoring offices of both the um, uh, the British Prime Minister's office and the Australian Prime Minister's have been hard at work to paint this thing as being much bigger than it was, when underneath it all, the defence procurement aspects of the relationship between Australia and the US and the UK are long-standing, well-established, been that way since the Second World War. And there's very little by way of US and, or British kit and equipment that the Australian military couldn't access. Um, and if it's going to be amended to incorporate nuclear-powered uh, submarines, that's an amendment on a pre-existing defence procurement arrangement has been around for a long time. On the China question, just two quick points. You said how much of it is the system and how much of it is Xi Jinping? I suppose if I was trying to put some numbers around it, Mark, I'd say one-third, two-thirds. The system is a Marxist-Leninist system, um, which is never known historically for its sense of humour. And uh, (laughs) go to the history of uh, 
Communist Party's evolution between 1921 and its founding in 1949. Go to the measures it took with the elimination of the so-called landlord class between 49 and 54, um, where probably two and a half million people were executed. Doesn't really figure much in the Western literature on China. Uh, then you have, of course, uh, the Great Leap Forward, which was a, uh, a di- planning disaster, probably 30 million dead. Um, you have the Cultural Revolution, where it's very difficult to get a finite number in terms of the number of people killed, um, but um, uh, in the hundreds of thousands, if not the low millions. So, as I said, as a Marxist-Leninist party, it doesn't exhibit a big structural sense of humour when its uh, existential interests are believed to be at stake. However, with Xi Jinping, you see a deliberate effort to move politics further to the left, economic policy further to a statist left as opposed to a pro-market position, which it had before, um, and moving nationalism as an animating force uh, for foreign and security policy further to the right. And I think that's very much of Xi Jinping's ideological and political creation. So, But it would not be possible for him to do so in the absence of the Marxist-Leninist pre-existing base. So you raise the good question, if in the future Xi Jinping is not there, uh, what does China revert to? Um, Joe and I said about um, the significance of the French Revolution, too early to tell. Um, um, but I think uh, given that the evolution of the Communist Party has been, dare I use a Marxist term, somewhat dialectic, that is one force reacting against another, the uh, next um, the next instalment in terms of China's political leadership would be more likely to correct back towards the centre. Um, by simply a product of the process of action and reaction. So I think that's the way it would go. But the, 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 probably the more fundamental question is this, is it probable? Um, Xi Jinping, in my analysis, is setting himself up to be leader for life, um, at least through until 2035. Um, he's in his late 60s now. Deng Xiaoping didn't formally begin exiting the political stage until he was well into his 80s. By 2035, Xi Jinping will be 82. Um, And his mother is still alive. His father lasted until he was well into his 90s. So I'd say fasten your seatbelts. But I'm glad glad to see that the current Australian government has all this so clearly in mind (laughs) in this Barnum-Bailey circus routine that we've seen otherwise masquerading as Australian national security policy in recent weeks and months. Yes. Look, final question, and it's a bit of a a change of direction back to something very domestic. You uh, famously uh, gave the uh, apology to stolen generations on behalf of the Australian Australian government, the Australian state, to uh, the... uh, people affected by that it was a very moving moment it was long overdue i wonder just reflecting on that now are you saddened by the lack of progress since then there has been the the uluru statement from the heart and the and the um very heartfelt gestures toward um white australia made by indigenous australia in in relation to that but progress has been glacial at best i wonder if you could just reflect on that as a final final uh, subject today uh, yeah, the um, I was talking to a bunch of um, year five and six kids the other day about this at a school here in Brisbane um, at Eight Mile Plains. 
And um, it's one of the reasons I play handball, by the way. I go around schools, I play the kids some handball, and then we have a chat about reconciliation. Because uh, on the, the uh, outside of our handballs are inscribed the words of the National Apology Foundation. So, um, and the reason I say that is because kids get it, young people get it, um, most people under 30 get it. In fact, I think most people under 40 get it. Um, yeah. And I think uh, this is washing through um, the national consciousness. As a reminder to kids recently, um, as Martin Luther King used to say, uh, the arc of history bends slowly towards justice. Um, and um, so we're, we're, we're in the... Uh, we're in the arc bending business here. Um, and once we bend the arc in one direction, the conservatives always take it upon themselves to try and bend it back um, uh, until uh, they realize that they're up against an irresistible force. They found that, for example, in the national apology. The politics in the Conservative Party room in 2008 were deeply hostile uh, towards the national apology. And they were stunned, and frankly, so was I, when the national response to the um, apology was so positive around the country and from all regions of the country. And so that then became, as it were, entrenched in the national psychology and no longer a question of partisan divide. Do you think that there, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think that there is that sort of underestimation by the political class often of the Australian people? Like there was around the same-sex marriage question as well. There's a sort of a sort of a churchy conservatism about the political class that is quite cautious and, and yet the people in, in an unfussy way had kind of moved on and didn't feel in any way threatened by, by that change. And, and I, I feel the same way about reconciliation um, and I just wonder whether you think that might be a, a correct analogy there I think that's right for example I was cl- slow to come to same-sex marriage as well but I was the first prime minister to take it to an election as uh, as our policy in 2013 it was defeated by uh, the archdeacon of uh, religious conservatism uh, Tony Abbott but I think you're right on the broader question the public move in a more sensible um, pragmatic, basically reformist way uh, than the political class give them credit to. The conservatives, I think, are in grave danger of only talking to people in the future who are over the age of 50. Very difficult to find someone the age of 20 at the moment who votes liberal. Um, very difficult. And you'll, you'll see that right across the country. Mind you, if you look at folks over 65, we have, um, as the Labor Party, we have a problem in terms of the, um, uh, the other end of the age demographic. But to, final, to answer your question about the reconciliation process, you know, when Goff did land rights legislation, uh, Vincent Lingiari, everyone thought the, uh, the, the world would fall apart. When uh, Paul did Mabo, they thought the economy would fall apart. When I did the apology, we thought there'd be a massive racist reaction across the country, uh, closing the gap, um, some success, some failures, but at least it's... Uh, still so entrenched now in the national political culture that it can't be abandoned as a framework, and that was my objective. Um, and the next wave of this will be, of course, Uluru, uh, constitutional recognition, a constitutionally entrenched national voice, and treaty. And I suspect it will probably follow in that order. 
and we'll have all this railing from the rafters, from the conservatives about all this stuff until one day it just happens. Sooner than later, I think. And everyone will say, geez, I don't know what all that was about. <laughs> that's where we're up to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, Kevin Rudd, look, it's been an absolute pleasure, honour to have you on Democracy Sausage. As I say, a former ANU alum and uh, um, it was, it's been really good. And I'm glad to be talking to you, uh, as I say, uh, at, a, at a reasonable hour rather than at 2.30 a.m. or whatever it was in Copenhagen uh, a dozen years ago. Well, as you know, at 2.30 a.m. I never cuss and swear either. So, <laughs> <laughs> Correct, <laughs> correct. That's, uh, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. 